get just a little bit dizzy, I want to apologize. But if you would, please watch the screen for just a second. They've been asking me to do this all day. Check me out. One more time. Come on. There's three reasons to pick me. Your move. In this line of work, you need strength as well as instincts. Put it right here. Check this out. Ready? Go! That's why you picked me. Your move. It's really only 259. They hate it when I do this. Check it out. It's time to pick me. It's your move. In this league, if there's a hole, no matter how small, you got to be able to get through it. Check this out. In your league, you better pick me. Your move. Hey, Chris. One more time. No, we're not going to start it over again. We're not... <laughs> Just got to run that loop. That's that's. Uh... I said to somebody earlier this week, I said, I think I found the greatest sermon introduction in the history of sermon introductions. Uh, let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to uh, Romans chapter 4. Uh, and we're going to consider this question, pick me. Uh, we, we live in a culture... Uh, that is obsessed with with winning. We we want to be the best. We want to be the strongest, the brightest, the fastest, uh, the richest, the most successful. You know, it's, that's kind of that American dream. Anybody can make it, and we applaud us. But you know, we're Midwesterners. We're we we are folks that that you know appreciate work and know that you're not just handed things in life. And so we have a high regard for. Uh, those among us that that work the hardest and and do the very best uh, with their god given abilities and, and in a sense uh, there there 's a, a bit of that that is part of our being made in the image of God. God created the universes uh, God uh, in Genesis we read that he he created a masterpiece and he got all done with it he said that 's very good. Uh, scripture certainly applauds uh, and endorses hard work. Paul goes so far as to say. Uh, in, in one of his letters to a young pastor who's trying to take care of a congregation learning the ropes, he says, you know, if you have any men in your congregation that refuse to work, then they don't eat. <laughs> it's just that simple. So I, I want to be careful here and, and not <clears throat> uh, uh, put work in, in, a, in a wrongful light. But I think that, that where we can run into danger is when we take uh, this attitude of, of pick me, I want to be the best, and we apply it to our relationship with God. Uh, and it looks something like this, you know, if I'm good enough, if I work hard enough, uh, if I do enough right things, then I go to heaven, right? You know, God's going to reward me for those good things I've done. And hopefully I've done enough of them, you know, to kind of put those on the, on the right side of the ledger and get in. Uh, which is ironic because the favorite hymn, if you get, you know, kind of just took, take a poll across the United States, the, the favorite hymn of all history in our country, anybody want to take a guess? Amazing Grace, right? Amazing Grace. 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We've changed that to uh, how, how uh, amazing are the works that I do, God. <laughs> pick me. Pick me. Uh, we sing amazing grace, and yet at times, we, if we really look at our hearts carefully, we're deeply offended at the notion that, that I'm a sinner, <laughs> that I am, I am wretched and I am broken, spiritually bankrupt, and I can't save myself, and I, and I don't need God to kind of come along and be my coach and tell me some keys to self-improvement. I actually need a Savior. I can't earn my way to heaven. And yet we approach God like he's picking his fantasy religious team. And we need to give him a reason to pick me. Well, in Romans chapter 4, as we continue our study in the book of Romans, the first 12 verses, uh, I believe, help us understand God's opinion of our assumption that we can work our way into heaven if we just do enough good deeds. So follow along with me, if you would, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, uh, in your own Bibles, or the passages is there on the screen this morning. Hear the word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Uh, when, when Paul says according to the flesh, it means according to his ability to, to do good things. What was he able to do in his own human strength? Uh, that's how he's using that word flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast, uh, to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts as righteous apart from works. And then Paul quotes out of Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised, uh, the, the Jewish nation, is the folks who Paul's talking about there? Uh, is the blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not before It was after, but, uh, excuse me, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together for just a moment. Kind of in the busyness and hectiness of, of getting into the, to the room, maybe you've had to get kids to Sunday school classes or it's a busy week and you're a bit tired, I'm going to give us just a moment for silent prayer and and would uh, invite you, as, I, as I'm going to pray myself, that God would teach us, that he would speak to us. He'd, he'd allow us to, uh, to have quiet hearts and still hearts before him to listen to his word and his spirit. So I'll give you a moment for silent prayer. Father, we have sung this morning, Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor that is due His name. We have sung 
the praise of Jesus because we call him in, the, in, that, in those songs, Savior. We talk about the redemption that he has purchased for us. We've talked about the fact that he went to the cross and suffered your wrath because he was taking our place. He was exchanging his, his rightness, his, his perfection, his glory for our imperfection, for our misdeeds, for our sin, for our lies, for our anger, for our lust, for our greed, for, for the rebellion as we had turned against you and gone our own way. And you know, Father, even as we, we sing these songs, I wonder if we really stop to think about what we're singing. Do we really understand the truth that is found therein? That when we call Jesus Savior, we are acknowledging our need for a Savior. When we call Jesus Savior, we are saying we are sinners. We are broken. We stand in need. We cannot save ourselves. But Father, although we, we sing that, although we, we uh, many of us really in our heart of hearts believe it at times, it, it's very easy to lose sight. It's very easy to... Uh, either become self-righteous and think that we can do it on our own or to just become hopeless. We look at our sin and say, there's no way Jesus could pay the price for this. So, Father, whether we're at one of those two extremes or somewhere in between there this morning, I pray that this passage of Scripture would enlighten our hearts, that we would worship you with our minds in these next few moments, that we would listen to your teaching, Lord. What I have to say is not important. My words do not carry uh, the eternal weight of Scripture. Only you speak perfect truth every time. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, guard my heart, guard my mouth, that the things that are said this morning would be of you and from you, and what isn't, we would just forget immediately. Lord, forgive me my sins. I need a Savior as much as everybody else in this room. I pray that you would not let me stand in the way of what someone may need to hear from you this morning. So, Jesus, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, well, probably the vast majority of the people in this room can't quite relate to the talent that was on that, that screen, whether it was actually kind of fixed or, or, or made up a little bit or they actually pulled that off. Uh, but probably every person in this room has at some point um, had the thought, you know, God pick me. <laughs> and, and right after that, maybe you thought, okay, now what would be his reasons for picking me? Uh, and that's really what Paul is addressing in this passage. And as we go through it, hopefully what we'll see is that there is a very a clear understanding of the Apostle Paul and how God offers uh, to be in relationship with us. Uh, there is a guideline. There is, there is a very direct truth uh, that God has laid out for us. But what, hopefully what we'll also see if we're tempted to think along those ways uh, or if we're tempted to think I can never ever be good enough uh, to earn God's love, we'll see that there's actually a hope that is not motivated out of our hearts and doesn't spring from our actions and our, our good deeds, so to speak, but rather it comes from God extending grace and mercy to us. So Paul goes back to the Old Testament, and I think in a way what Paul is saying, is, okay, let's pick, if there was one guy that could do it by works, who's the best guy we could put forward? So it's like if you're, you know, you're, you're dividing up and you're picking teams, you're like, okay, who's the, the first guy or the first gal that's always picked for the team? Well, Paul says, well, that's Abraham. Of course, everybody knows who's read the Bible. Abraham's going to be uh, either at the top of the list or at the very close to the top of the list uh, of people who exemplify maybe a chance to do everything the right way and to earn God's favor. Uh, Abraham is the patriarch. He's the founding father of the Jewish nation. You know, if he can't earn it, then, then who can? And in fact, in, in Paul's day, 
Uh, there were, there were uh, bi- not biblical texts, what we call extra-biblical texts, but, but ancient writings that pointed to the fact that a lot of people believed that Abraham had done it, that he, he had worked hard enough and succeeded in being in relationship with God, not based on needing to be saved, but on his own goodness. Uh, and I'm just going to give you a, a couple of examples real quick. In, in the Mishnah, we read these words. Uh, talking about uh, talking about Abraham, and we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. So the question is, well, well you know, the law came after Abraham. How did he do? And, and this author is right. He says, well, even though the law wasn't written down, he knew it in his heart and he kept it all perfectly. Uh, from the book of Jubilee, which is about a hundred years. 150 years before Paul wrote the book of Romans, it says, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And then I'll give you one more from the prayer of Manassas. Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance unto the righteous, uh, unto the righteous, unto Abraham. Uh, so what these three kind of different writings and prayers are saying is, one, Abraham performed the law perfectly before it was ever written. Secondly, that he was perfect in all the deeds uh, of his life. And thirdly, he had no need for repentance. So the conclusion is that Abraham was justified by his works and therefore an example for us to follow. We should do that. We should consider what are the works that I need to do to be saved. Well, is that correct? For those authors, uh, do they understand the mind of God when it comes to his relationship with us. I would suggest that uh, chapters 4, verses 1 and 2 uh, perhaps would beg to differ a little bit with that opinion. Look at the first two verses of this text. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, according to these good deeds? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What Paul is saying is, friends, you've got your focus in the wrong place. You're saying, what do I have to do to make myself good enough? And you're looking inward. You need to understand that, that there is one who will judge you. And, and you are not the final arbiter on whether or not your deeds are sufficient or lacking. God is the one. And so Paul says, was Abraham justified according to the flesh? Did, did he have something to boast about? Well, let's look at what Abraham may have had to boast about. I made a real quick list. Uh, and this is usually this screen is, is back here so I can I can look at it. I'm going to kind of read backwards and hopefully get it right. Uh, but in Genesis 12, here are the, here are the good things that Abraham uh, has done. He can boast about them. God says, I want you to leave your homeland. And I want you to go to a country that I'm going to show you. And that was pretty much the end of the conversation. <laughs> and, and no no roadmap, no directions, no, um, you know, bring everybody along. You know, God says, I want you to leave your family, leave your kin behind and go someplace that I'll show you. And Abraham does that. He obeys. He goes to this foreign land. He gets all his camels and his animals, and he goes to this foreign land. Uh, secondly, in Genesis 14, um, he selflessly comes to the, ref, the rescue of his nephew Lot. Uh, basically, Lot was, was uh, uh, traveling along with Abraham, and they got to the land, and Lot had a bunch of uh, animals, and Abraham had a bunch of animals. They were, they were kind of ranchers, and both their herds grew, and their servants started to fight with each other. And Abraham called Lot one day. He goes, you know, this isn't good. With this kind of a mess, because we don't need to fight, we're family. So you, you know, we're standing up on this hill, you point what direction you go in, and I'll go the opposite direction. And Lot looked around, and he saw this plush, green, beautiful valley. I mean, a rancher's, you know, fantasy. It was just the best place uh, to raise cattle and sheep and donkeys. And, and Lot said, okay, uh, thanks, Uncle Abraham, I'll go this way. 
And Abraham looked over here, and it was desolate, and it was barren. And he said, okay, I'll go this way. Well, Abraham, or Lot ends up in, in a little town called uh, Sodom, which we'll talk about in just a second. And he runs into all kinds of problems. But one of the things that happens uh, is that the town is, is captured and carried off into captivity by another army. And Abraham could have said, well, you know, that's what you get. That's what you get for hanging around with the wrong kind of people. You hang around bad people, that, that's, that, that's the crowd you run with, that's going to happen. Abraham gathers all his guys, and he goes and he rescues Lot. When he brings Lot back, they come back to Sodom. The king says, I want you to take whatever you want out of the plunder. I want, I want to pay you a finder's fee for setting all this up for us, for straightening it out. And Abraham says, I don't want a penny of your money. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty selfless. That, that's pretty good in, in that side of the margin. Uh, thirdly, the uh, thing that we will celebrate in Genesis chapter 8 thing is that he prayed to God for mercy for Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, the angels passed by Abraham's tent and they say, we're going to go destroy the city. And Abraham begins to plead and to pray for these people who are, who are wicked beyond uh, the wildest imagination. He has a soft spot in his heart for people who are lost. That's pretty impressive. One more on the good side of the ledger uh, for Abraham. In chapter 22, God says, I want you to take Isaac. And I'll go to a mountain where I'll show you, and there I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeys God in that moment. God spares Isaac, which was his intention all along, but Abraham followed God. He has done all of these wonderful things. There's a lot of really great stuff on Abraham's side of the column that isn't on Tom Rick's side of the column. And I would be tempted to think, wow, he, he's pretty impressive. He's done a great job. But, but Paul ends verse 2 by saying, but not before God. And then he goes on to verse 3. Uh, if you look at verse 3 with me for a minute, he says this. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why does, why does Paul in Romans 3 go back and quote literally Genesis 15, 6? Now, you have to remember the definition of righteousness for just a minute. We'll put it on the bottom of the screen. Righteousness is the perfect union of justice and mercy. Okay? It's the perfect union of justice and mercy. As we've said before in this series of Romans, we'll probably say it a hundred times before we're done, God isn't going to ignore your sin. God isn't going to say, well, that's okay, you get a free pass. God is perfectly just, and he will demand that every crime be paid. But he is also equally a God of mercy who wants to save sinners. And God's righteousness is his design to do just that. Well, Paul says, as he's quoting Genesis, that Abraham was declared, was counted, was credited as righteous. That means that in Abraham's life, both justice and mercy had to come together. Well, we looked at the positive side for Abraham on the balance sheet. Let's look at the other side, because there's actually another side to this coin. Abraham has a few missteps in his life, some of them pretty significant. When he went down to um, Egypt for the first time, he made a couple of sojourns down there. Uh, Pharaoh saw his wife, who at the time was named Sarai. She later on, uh, her name is changed to Sarai. And, and Sarai apparently, apparently was a knockout. She was beautiful. She was gorgeous. And, uh, and Abraham was worried that they were going to kill him and take her. Pharaoh was going to steal his wife from him. And so, and they're on the outskirts of town. He explains all this to his wife. He says, now when we're in Egypt, we're just going to say that you're my sister. Now, ladies, I'm not sure how you react to that. I know how my wife would react to that if I made that suggestion. <laughs> That's an abominable thought. That is a wretched, wretched idea. The husband should die for his wife. Husband say, if you get my wife, it's over my dead body. 
And instead of being the leader and the protector of his clan, as he demonstrated by saving Lot, he says to the most precious person in his life, I don't know what's going to happen to you, but let's just say you're my sister. That doesn't bode well for Abraham. Secondly, in chapter 16, he ignored God's promise. Sarah uh, said, why don't you take my maidservant Hagar and have a child through her? That's how God's going to do this. Now, what Sarah forgot was that God said to Abraham, through Sarah, you're going to have a child. And, 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 you know, I call it a brain cramp. You ever brain cramp? Everyone saw uh, Abraham had a brain cramp. And he took Hagar and he produced, the, the two of them, their union produced a child. Abraham ignored the promise that God had given him. As if he was saying, God, I thought you could do it, but apparently you're not going to be able to, so I'm going to go ahead and take matters into my own hands. And then, uh, and then thirdly, uh, in Genesis chapter 20, he repeats a previous sin. Uh, Abimelech is another king in the, in the local area. They're traveling through his land, and he does the same thing by now. Sarai's name is now Sarah, but he says the same thing to her. Uh, these guys are going to kill me probably if, if we don't say you're my sister. And Abimelech actually took Abraham's wife Sarah and brought her into his own household, and we don't need to go into what all that means, but you understand. And then God strikes Abimelech with a plague, and Abimelech says, what did I do? And they found out that Abraham all that time was lying about his wife. You see, friends, if Abraham is the best we have to offer, we're in trouble because he's not innocent by any stretch of the imagination, nor is he therefore justified by his works. Well, that's the the track record I'm I'm calling. That's Abraham's track record. Verses 4 and 5 of this passage, I think, explain why this happened. Verses 4 and 5 say this. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who is not worked, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Now, uh, Paul uses this word counted, and in some of your translations, you may have a different translation, uh, it may say credited, but, but the idea there is that it's put in the, in the plus side. It's like a deposit. So when you, when you deposit some money in your bank, it's credited to your account. That's the language that Paul uses here. Eight times in 12 verses, he uses the word counted, credited, count. Uh, and, and he's talking about this idea of a salary. And Paul says, now, for the person who works, the wages aren't a gift. You know, I don't, I don't send the, 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 uh, the business manager of Green Tree a thank you every, note every couple of weeks when he hands me my paycheck. I, I've worked for that. In fact, um, uh, about a year ago, I went, to, uh, I went to the business office. I said, I want to start putting some money into my mom's account. She loaned me some money a while back, and I want to start paying, paying her off. We've agreed on how we're going to do that. So I want to take you know, a small, relatively small sum of money on my paycheck and put that against my mom. So no problem. Got all worked out. A couple weeks later, I, I, I go online to look at my account, and, and what they've done in my account is they've taken that small amount of my paycheck and put it in my account, and my mom's across the driveway jumping for joy because somehow she had, you know, a pretty good windfall as she didn't, wasn't quite sure where it came from. You know, mom's real happy. Tom's pretty upset. <laughs> Tom goes into the business manager and says, you know what? I really enjoy Green Tree. Love the people at Green Tree. I think they kind of like me, but this is a job <laughs> where I want my money. <laughs> right? Well, how often do we say, God, I want my just due? You see the good stuff I did here, right? You, you see that I've worked for this. Now come on. I've earned it. It should be mine. But what does it say? Could Abraham say, God, pay me my due? God, give me what's owed? I want you to see very carefully what it says in verse 5. I, this, this is the linchpin, I think, for this whole passage. To the one who does not work, 
to the one who says, you know what, I can't earn it, okay? The one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. What you need to understand, what we need to understand here is that God justifies the ungodly, and Paul is identifying Father Abraham as the ungodly. Paul is saying, let's not, you know, be superficial here. Let's not play pretend. Let's not turn a blind eye to the facts of the situation. Abraham is guilty before God of sin, and it is God who justifies the ungodly. Abraham was a sinner. He needed mercy. He couldn't earn a right standing before God. He believed God, and he believed that God would save him. So Abraham himself would put himself in the place of the one who needs to be justified by the grace of God and not by his own works. Now, just in case we're still a little bit stubborn, and just in case we're not quite ready to give in, and we're not quite ready to let go of this idea that, that we could save ourselves, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those, and this is out of Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, so if Abraham's kind of, kind of 1A, you know, maybe we have one more hope and it would probably be, uh, 1B would be King David. King David, the, the one who as a kid went out and, and, and got a bunch of rocks and took down the giant Goliath. David, who, who was taken from being a shepherd, and God said, I'm going to anoint you as king over my people Israel. And he was the king that united the nation and expanded their borders and brought peace to the nation for the first time since they had arrived in Canaan after captivity in Egypt. David, the writer of the Psalms, the poet, the musician. David, the one who, who loved his, his, the, the son of his enemy, Jonathan, more than he loved his own life. David, who is called in Scripture the apple of God's eye. Do you think David is, is writing, blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and thinking about other people? You think David penned this psalm, worried about the, the poor and lowly folks that couldn't be quite as good as he had been? That we don't understand Scripture, all you need to do is go back to 1 Samuel and read of David's sin with Bathsheba. The claim earlier was that Abraham kept the law before the law ever got here. David had the law of Moses. And in his sin with Bathsheba, he, he broke at least three of the Ten Commandments, probably more if you really took time to think about it. I just kind of skimmed over it. He broke just a, and if you want the numbers, they're 10, 6, and 7 in that order. Um, the, the 10th commandment says, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And it says explicitly, don't co- covet your neighbor's wife. Uriah the Hittite lived next door to the palace, and David saw Bathsheba, his wife, in a compromising position. And he coveted her. He wanted her for his own. He Literally, the word covet means you think you deserve it more than the other person. Then the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. You won't have sexual relationships outside the bounds of your marriage with your spouse. And David brought Bathsheba into his home, and he had relationships with her. And then he broke the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not murder. Instead of confessing his sin, instead of acknowledging what he did, he had Uriah sent to the front of the lines, one of his best guys, his next-door neighbor, and he had him killed. He knew he would die in the battle. 
He murdered him. It was just the same as if he had picked up the sword himself and run him through. So if we're going to put David up there as our next best hope, of somebody who could show the way by, by living out in perfect obedience and earning his way to heaven, we must understand that he too fails miserably. Psalm 32 is David rejoicing about the grace and the mercy of God that he experiences. Psalm 51, the same way where, where he talks about how God will forgive him. And in Psalm 51 specifically speaks of his sin with Bathsheba. Well, but when David said, blessed is the man, he's looking in the mirror. And verses 6 through 8 simply confirm what Paul has been saying in the first several verses of this passage. That if we're going to look to any human being, what we're going to do is be nothing more than terribly disappointed. And so he comes to verses 9 through 12, and he, and he kind of brings the, brings the truth home. He, he gives us three very specific statements in these last several verses with a resounding conclusion. Look at verses 9 and 10 where, where Paul basically says, uh, timing in this is, is everything. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. The, the blessing, that, that word in, 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 uh, in, in verse 9, the blessing of God, the, the stamp of approval. Uh, the blessing is, is the person is to be congratulated. They, they are in, they're in, in good relationship. When did that happen? Did God apply that to Abraham before or after he obeyed by going through the rite of circumcision? Well, it's very clear that it was before. God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your country and come and follow me. And then he, he makes uh, this promise to him in, in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, um, Abraham follows God. Well, from that moment until when Abraham was circumcised, if you go through and you kind of do the history... Um, it, was a, it was a minimum of 14 years and probably as much as 29 years later before Abraham actually uh, practiced the rite of circumcision with himself and all of the men in his household. So Paul's point is, look, when God called Abraham, when God applied the righteousness of, uh, of justice and mercy, when he, when he credited that to Abraham, it was not because he looked down there and said, okay, now Abraham's done enough st- good stuff, he's now earned it. So before any of that happened, God already knew that he was going to save Abraham. So the timing in, in, this, in this plan of salvation, it's not after we prove our worth. It's before anything good or bad because God knows that we need salvation. And so in verse 11, it becomes clear that, that Abraham is a living example. He receives the sign of circumcision as a seal, an outward seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them at well as well. He became the father of those who would also believe. That's part of Abraham's role. Abraham, the, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of all people of faith in Christ Jesus. He's the one, his life calls us to reject a works-based salvation. His life calls us to embrace faith. Abraham would never stand here and say, I was justified by my good works. Abraham would say, let me tell you about all the stuff I did wrong in my, li- in my life. He'd probably say, I'm, I'm almost too embarrassed except for the grace of God to tell you how I treated my wife 
on at least two different occasions. He would speak clearly to the grace of God. And you know, that's a dad's role, right? A father is supposed to point the way for his children. A father is supposed to say, uh, son, daughter, do it this way. Living, living this way. I, I've tried to do that with my kids. I've tried to be an example. Sometimes I have to be an example of asking for forgiveness and, and, and being willing to acknowledge my own sin. But I, but I try to teach my children as they grow up, Cindy, the same way. Uh, we you know, try to be a, an example for our kids and a role model, point them in this direction. I used to say to the boys, you know, if, you, if you're gracious and kind and loving uh, to the young lady that you're interested in, you might have a chance that she might actually like you back asking for forgiveness and, and, and being one kind of likes him a lot. Pretty cool. And I'm like, hey, dad, way to go. I told him the right stuff. It worked. He's going to be out of my house. It's going to be so great. <laughs> He's been out of my house for a long time. I'm just messing around. But I, I'm still bitter about the whole deacon thing he did with my sermon stuff. So um, those of you who were here last year when that happened. Um, but that's, the, the, that's what the dad's supposed to say. Son, come this way. Daughter, come this way. That's what a parent's supposed to do. And Father Abraham is saying to us, son, daughter, this morning, it's this way. It's not, it's not the road of works. It's this way. It is the road of faith. It's trusting in the mercy and the grace of God. And as our father, spiritually in the faith, he speaks to us this morning as a living example. And then in verse 12, uh, Paul ends this section of scripture with what I, I'm going to call a solemn reminder. He says this, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. When Paul says he was the father of the circumcised, he's not just reminding us that he was the, he, he was the forebearer and the, and, and the cornerstone of the, the literal physical nation of Israel, but he's reminding us to forsake any temptation to trust in salvation and our own strength. What he's saying is there is circumcision pointed to faith. It was never meant to replace it. And so here we stand this morning, some 2,000 plus years after this passage in Romans, some four to 5,000 plus years since the life of Abraham, with verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4. And I think there are several applications to this text. But primarily, I think it, this morning for us, it addresses the pick me, pick me, I'm the best mentality as we desire to approach God based on our works instead of his grace and mercy. I'll give you a couple of applications. The first is this, to the supremely spiritually self-confident, to those who say, you know what, I'm, I'm not convinced. I know I can do it. I want you to remember how God views you apart from Christ. Go back to verse 5. He who justifies the ungodly. Friend, you stand in the same place as the rest of us do. In God's eyes, apart from Christ, it doesn't matter how many things you've done great. Your heart and your soul are corrupt. And every time there's a thought that's inappropriate, every time there's a word that you wish you could take back, even you kind of said it, and you go, well, I'm just going to put that back. Every time you, you have anger in your heart towards someone else, Jesus said, you know, if you're angry at somebody, you've actually murdered them. It's the same thing. Even if you haven't committed the physical action, you, you've actually murdered the person. You stand in need of the same grace as we do. I was um, in my office yesterday, uh, finishing up the sermon. It was probably about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And um, I had the window just cracked open a little bit because it was still kind of warm yesterday. And off in the distance, I kind of hear this noise. And, and there's a little bit of a bell, but there's also a little bit of this kind of nauseating, sing-songy kind of, you know, canned music. And I'm like, it's getting closer, it's getting louder. And I'm like, 
That sounds like an ice cream truck. It's February the 19th. I mean, I know it's 48 degrees outside, but that sounds like, that can't be an ice cream truck. Then I'm starting to, man, I'm starting to hear things, you know, and I'm like, what's wrong with me? And I'm getting a little paranoid. But I look out my window, and sure enough, there goes an ice cream truck right by my window. Now, there's, there's a lot of stuff wrong with that, but let me just name a couple things. Where are, there are no houses around where our office is. There's some apartment, high-rise apartment. There are no kids around our office. He's got to go 10, 12 blocks away from us to find the children. And number two, don't you think it's grossly optimistic to think you're going to sell anybody ice cream on the street in February? I mean, on my window. Now, there's, there's a lot of stuff wrong. You know, I think he might have sold two ice cream bars the whole day. And here I am driving my spiritual ice cream truck down the street saying, God, I, I got it all. I got it all. That's how absurd the idea that I could be confident in my own good works is. But I think there's another side of this coin, and I think the second application in this whole idea of pick me is that, you know, some people, they never raise their hand for that. They never say, oh, pick me, pick me. They stand back in the corner, and they pray that they won't be the last one picked. But they know that there's no hope for them. And they've succumbed to the, to the sin of unbelief. And they've so focused on the mistakes they've made or the, or the willful choices they made to disobey God and they've become convinced that God would never in a million years pick them. Friends, that sin is just as wretched as the sin of self-confidence because it says God is not powerful enough. Even if I had faith, God is not powerful enough to overcome my sin. Remember Abraham gave his wife away? I'm pretty sure you may have done something that bad, but you couldn't possibly have done anything worse than that. We're not hopeless because through Christ, Abraham wasn't hopeless. David, the coveter, the the adulterer, the, the murderer was not hopeless because through faith, they were credited as righteous. Abraham and David both said, it's got to be somebody besides me. It's got to be the grace and the mercy of God. And I believe that this morning for Green Tree Community Church, the application is, is two-sided for the self-righteous and for the hopeless. Come to the cross of Christ. Reject your works. Reject your, your goodness. Whatever you think it is, trust me, it's not as good as you think. Go, go ask your spouse. Go ask somebody who knows you. They'll tell you. <laughs> you're not as good as you think you are. But for the hopeless, you're not lost. The cross of Christ is sufficient for you. We say at Green Tree that we want to grow disciples and we want to renew communities and we want to plant churches. The only way we're really ultimately going to be successful in engaging our culture is not by inviting them to church on Sunday morning, although I think that's a great idea. I hope you do that. It's not just going to be by you know, inviting them over to have a cup of coffee or hanging out with them or getting to know them, although that's tremendous. We ought to be doing that all the time. It's going to be because as we have those interactions, a cup of coffee with a friend, a conversation with a business colleague, you know, lunch break, hanging out with, with a buddy at the golf course at the bowling alley this afternoon. It's going to be because we understand that our message is not pick me, but it's rather, God, you have picked Christ on my behalf. And my faith and my hope and my assurance is in him. That's the message that the world needs to hear. It's the message that we need to preach to our own hearts. God has said, I pick you through Christ.